it took me a while to understand that that in itself was rooted in my family's history, my family being imprisoned in Iran and all of that stuff. And just, you know, having this concept of injustice kind of being epigenetically passed on to me, right? So it just pushes you in a certain direction. I'm the first generation that was born in the UK. Great, Before okay. that, they were in Iran. I get confused about that too, because if your parents came to England, are they first generation or are the kids the first generation? But the kids. The kids, right? Yeah. So then I'm second generation. Right. So my parents are immigrants. Yeah, your parents are immigrants. I think. I don't even understand because it's like immigrants, refugees, asylees, I don't know. All of the above. Okay, so you're Iranian. Mm-hmm. Which I figured. Yeah. I didn't think you were just a, a bloke from across the pond just fighting for <laughs> Iranian rights, which is people should be. Yeah. Um, that's not my point either. Yeah. But I just want to get your background to understand what you've been up to. And um, do you want to introduce yourself properly so I don't butcher it? Sure. Um, my name is Elika Lebon. I am from London. I was born and raised in London. My parents are from Iran and they left around the time of the revolution. Um, and then I moved to the States and became an attorney. And I've been doing activism, attorneyism, and all of the above ever since. Attorneyism. Hmm. It's not a word. It should be. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. And like I another word that I think should be a word is activating. Because like how do you describe activism in that way? Like I've been activating for the past ten years. What else what else would you say? You've been doing things. No. Well, activating then. There you go. Perfect. Yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> let's check that off the list of yeah, what I wanted to only, ask you there's today. There's only that. I, there's no other word. Yeah, it's fair. Okay. Good. Well, take your take your drink. Let's get to. We're going to get going right now because let's even though go. we are going, people, by the way, because I think we definitely started the episode, and I I invited and and she accepted to be on the podcast because as I mentioned pre-recording, I I know what's going on in Iran, but I, there's so much I don't. And I'm interested. I want to educate myself selfishly, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I've been seeing. I've recently have been seeing what you were doing and how you're you are activating. You mm-hmm. see how easy that is. Yeah, I like that. Just rolls off the tongue. Yeah, and you've been, you the things you post and, and on social media, and um, maybe there's other stuff that you're doing that I've missed. Is uh, you know, it's direct and it's very in people's faces in a way that I feel like you can't really argue what you're saying. Not that <laughs> there's something to argue, but you know, there's people on both sides. So you, I love the way I love your delivery and your approach. I just feel like you're just really getting after it and educating people like me, and doing your best to activate and try to make a difference as, as what's going on. So I wanted you to maybe help me out and help people listening as to what is really going on over there. Yeah. Well, to that, first of all, I would say that that just comes from being an attorney, first of all, because if there's any holes in your argument, the judge will rip you a new arsehole. So after you get several new arseholes, you learn how to cover every hole. That can be ripped open. Now I'm uh, I'm concerned or excited that you're sitting on my couch because I don't know how many holes you have. <laughs> so we'll carry oh, on. Oh, there are my... many. Okay, there are many. Um, so yeah, you you learn fast. Let's just say mm-hmm. when you become an attorney, you learn fast to cover all grounds. So what's going on in Iran? I mean, where do I begin? So obviously, before Iran didn't always look like this. Um, before the Islamic Republic, there was a monarchy, which was um, you know ruled by the Shah. And during that time, it was socially liberal. And this is a very controversial topic, which I don't like to get into a lot because people have very, very different opinions about the Shah. But for all intents and purposes, it was socially liberal. You had freedom of religion, you know, people, there was like diversity. Um, People could go out 
drinking. They weren't wearing headscarves. They had the choice to wear headscarves, but they were, um, you know, free for most, for all intents and purposes. Then after 1979, the Islamic Revolution happened and it, you know, it kind of masqueraded initially as uh, a way to oust the Shah because people were dissatisfied with the Shah and they thought they were getting something better. But instead, it was a very draconian dictatorship where people who, you know, even dared to challenge the supreme leader would have been executed. So the early, the first couple of years of the, after the revolution were the toughest, most um, draconian, uh, zero tolerance years of the regime. And that is during those years that some of my family members were executed and all for nothing. You know, it was always for nothing. Like my uncle, for example, they found some materials in his car that was like anti-regime materials, which could literally just be like a book or a newspaper or something that's criticizing the government, right? And so um, my mom was in Evan prison. My aunt was in Evan prison. She was pregnant with my cousin, when they executed her husband. So my cousin never met her dad. And they executed 13 of my family members just on my mum's side. My granddad's sister, niece, nephew, cousins, just my mum's cousin, so many. So then the landscape of Iran just changed. It became the Islamic Republic. So for 43 years, you know, immediately after the revolution, everything changed. Like women lost so many of their rights. They, you know, lost the right to sing, to dance in public. They had to be veiled. Um, And then, you know, this went on, this has been going on for the past 43 years. And during that time, we've had some periods of pushback. Like you had certain, like, mini revolutions, large-scale protests that looked like revolutions, 2009, 2019, um, but they were always quashed and the international community always lost, lost attention. But now, so then obviously what happened is that in September, after the death of Massa Gina Amini, which is what caught the mainstream media's attention, this girl who was incorrectly wearing her hijab was stopped by the morality police and she was detained and she was beaten and she was killed. So that, um, the best analogy I have for that is kind of like it was like a George Floyd moment. So if an observer from outside the US or maybe outside the world, because everyone in the world knows what happened there, but like an alien looked at that situation, they would be like, why are you so mad about one man's death? But to people who know, it was like, it's not one man's death. It was like the final stick that broke the camel's back, right? So Masa Gina Amini was like the final stick that broke the camel's back in the Islamic Republic of Iran. And that fomented this revolution that has become just like seismic in magnitude at this point. And I think the difference and why the world is paying so much more attention now and it's not dying out the way that it did um, during the green movement and previous revolutions is because of the age of information and the way that we're so easily able to, even the way that they've cut off the internet, we're still so easily able to share information and they can't lie and they can't hide anymore. So that's how we got to where we are now. Yeah, I mean, you just answered my question as to, because my first thing was thinking, why was this the the one that stroked the camel's back? Not, like, not mm-hmm. obviously, every... Broke. every it, it didn't stroke. It didn't stroke the camel's back. Is that what I said? 
Yeah. Stroke the camel's back. Yeah, I think the camel wouldn't be mad if you stroked his back. <laughs> I was going to say, that was, sounds a lot more pleasant than what I hear that's going on over there. So we're not stroking any camels. Definitely broke, yeah. There we go. There was the accidental <laughs> levity that I think we needed in that moment. So back to this commercial break. And uh, so obviously, like you said, well, the first, that other revolution was 79? Um, there was, uh, it was 2009, the Green Movement. What was the, what was the one? Oh, the first one. The, the first initial one. one was 1979. 1979. Yeah. And since then, this, what was her name? Mashi? Who? What was it? What was the woman's name who called Masa Amini? Masa. Yeah. So prior to that, is this a regular thing? I'm saying, like, you're saying this is a, one of the things that happened that caused what we're oh, into now. Yes, 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 yeah, yeah. So obviously, prior to Masa Amini, they were doing, you know, they were detaining women for not properly wearing hijab. And, you know, we don't we don't know all of the stories of what they did to those women because they have like, you know, this form of secrecy in the Islamic Republic. This is why you don't hear it's really difficult to get the stories out of the out of there. But they, of course, they've been doing this to women for the past 43 years. Yeah. Right. And I, we, I, we all knew that, but it never got the just get clearly attention that we're getting now. And obviously the information age that we're not does that. And this conversation was besides the fact of just kind of, you know, giving, I know you have your own platform and you're doing great, but it's just another opportunity to learn what's going out there and another platform to speak about it in relation to this podcast that does talk about death. This entire movement is built off exactly that. Mm. And I find it so remarkable how how these movements happen, and then especially what's happening over there is just so different than anything that's happened in the states. We don't, mm-hmm. we, don't we don't see that world. It's not it's not even close. Right. Obviously, we've had certain protests based on deaths, but the people that are protesting usually are not at risk of losing their lives mm-hmm. for protesting. So I'm just curious: Have you ever are you are you speaking to people that are currently? You're also speaking to have connections out there that are people that are protesting and all mm-hmm. that. Have you had any conversation about their perspective of willing to put their own neck on the line? to fight for this, knowing that now their life might be taken? Because to me, that's an interesting perspective of facing death, knowing that might come. Yeah, well, I think the perspective that they have is that they're facing death, but what's the alternative, right? So right now, the state of the country is just in ruin. And I mean, it's in financial ruin for so many reasons, um, economic ruin, and they don't feel like they have a future, they don't feel like they have a future for so many reasons because they don't have freedom of anything and their living conditions are so dire. I mean, if you think about it over here, right? All of a sudden you don't have freedom of speech. All of a sudden you don't have freedom of religion. All of a sudden you look at somebody funny and you're getting hanged. Like, what are you going to do? Just sit in your home crying? You're At that point, you're like, well, I might as well face death for this because what's the alternative to death? I don't have a life, right? So, from their perspective, it's like, I might as well risk death for life. That's it. That's it right there. I guess you're, it's, a no, it's your only option. It's your only option. And then that is what makes it so powerful, right? Yes. Is when you have nothing to lose type situation. So is that why we're part of, the, part of the reason why there's so much movement that's happening? Because mm-hmm. there is clearly progress happening right now, right. right? Yeah, it's like they have nothing to live for and everything to die for. And I think that, it's funny because people say, when they talk about it, they say like, oh, Iranian women have no fear. They have no fear. But I think it's it's more than that. I think it's like they have fear, but their purpose is bigger than fear. Mm. Right? You know that saying, feel the fear and do it anyway. I think like there's, you know, there's been periods of time where the fear the fear has been like there, right? And then at some point, the motivation just like surpasses the fear. So the fear is still underneath but the motivation is so much stronger because they've been pushed into this now. Like it's it's been going on for 43 years. And also I think it's like 
80%, something like that, 80% of people in Iran are Gen Z. Like these are young people, right? And 80? they have 80%. Yeah. That's a high, that's a much higher percentage than I anticipated. Really high. It's just, it's all Gen Z. So they have their whole lives ahead of them. They're not going to live like this. They're not going to live like this in, in a system that doesn't suit them, in a system that oppresses them, and a system that's literally choking them for the rest of their lives. It doesn't make any sense, right? I mean, if you had a country that was like an, an older generation, maybe by that point, they would be like, you know, fuck it. I'm close to death anyway. Let me just oblige. But this is a generation that's not going to stand down because they value their lives. They value their future. They value posterity. And they're not going to let the fear hold them back. And that's got to be freeing in many ways, right? I, I can't imagine being in a position. I, I, don't, I, don't, I can't relate to that. I don't even know what that feels like. And, and the only thing I could think of even though it's in a dire state, it's kind of contradicting, but it, contradictory, but it's freeing in many ways. So I, I can't. It's so even though liber, liberation hasn't been fulfilled, I guess in many ways, but mm-hmm. just being where they are right now has to be liberating. I'm seeing the videos I'm seeing are just I don't I don't I don't know how to explain it. It's just, it's I, I'm so far from it that it's hard to I, I don't know. I feel like we're in a place that we see so much online, even though the information age is so powerful to create to help movements like this. There's also like, a, I don't know, maybe it's just me sometimes and I try to catch myself not to get there. It's There's a level of being desensitized for seeing some of this mm. sometimes. So I just wonder how long, that that the revolution in 1979, was I correct with reading yes. something that said it was 15, it took like 15 months or something like that? Um, maybe what, whatever, something like whatever. that. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that's what I saw. Google it somewhere else. I don't have my person here. <laughs> Nor do I it's ever. It's because it's me yeah, and I'm here. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> quick quick pause in the conversation, but Elika is going to um, be my go-to person on the side, off camera. Maybe on camera occasionally, you should. Yeah. Okay. But we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll but because I'm, I'm not, because I'm here, I, I can't do my job there. That's yeah, and the, the job problem. there would be if I had a question that I wanted to fact check, I would ask her and we would have an answer right now. I don't have my lap, my laptop's all the way over there. Anyway, back to the program. Yeah, so that de- there's like a level of desensitization. So I wonder how I feel like you see certain movements happen. This is of a, a ridiculous scale, so I can't imagine it losing steam. But I wonder how much of a correlation to a movement continuing its progress, continuing its pace, when you constantly see this stuff. And I feel like I see so many people that even like me sometimes see it, and then and then it's like I swipe somewhere else, and it's a playback of a baseball game. Mm. And I guess my point is how much of this movement is continuing steam like is it slow right. is, is there any is it continuing on are people seeing these horrible videos and it's building up power or is it like oh my god more i'm just i can't look at that anymore yeah well it's interesting because i have been acutely aware of this very thing and well just to give you some background the islamic republic knows all too well this like phenomenon of desensitization and in the early years in its embryonic stage what it was doing was that it was doing mass executions in public. So they were lynching people in public and they were showing it on TV and you would just like drive around and just see people hanging from a crane. And the whole purpose of it was, number one, as a deterrent. So this is what we're going to do to you if you don't comply. And number two, for the very purpose of desensitization. So you're just walking around town with your kids seeing someone hanging from a crane and it's like, oh, right? Like that's how you desensitize the public to death. So it doesn't seem as outrageous anymore. Like it gets to a point, I mean, even times when I would visit Iran, people would just be like, "Mm, it's okay, you know, because they normalize it. They normalize, that's how you normalize death. I'm doing it in a completely different way, but 
in in a good way. Okay, yeah, because you're not murdering. No, no. You normalize death, but you don't normalize murder. Yeah, it's crazy. Right? And so I'm very aware of the, the content that I put on my TikTok, right? So I do not sit there all day, every day on TikTok sharing like videos. I... I, sh- I cultivate certain stories of people inside of Iran and I give it time and I wait and then I put these stories out and I share what's happening to them. And every time I share it, it's always because I'm almost a lot more desensitized to it. And so when I see people's reactions that are like, oh my God, this is horrible. Oh my God, this is horrific. Oh my God, I can't believe it. I'm like, okay, you're not desensitized yet. So that's good because if I keep inundating them, that's exactly going to be the reaction, right? Like how much more of this can we take? Mm-hmm. So... Yes, I think desensitization is someone who is as evil as, you know, the people behind the regime. They know how to exploit that tactic of desensitization, right? Because if you hide it, if you hide it enough, if you hide murder and death enough, it's always going to be a surprise. It's always going to be outrage when you find out. But if you constantly expose people to death, murder, death, murder, 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 then it just becomes another day in the life. What are the conversations that you've had with your, in regards to all of that, people that in your family lineage that have Mm -hmm. have been experiencing, that have experienced the first revolution? Have you had conversations with them about how they've processed it? I don't think they have processed it. I think (laughs) it's funny because like... Iranian people are like, my, my family is just like completely crazy. Like they're all completely crazy, but you know, being crazy is like a byproduct of trauma, right? So you don't process it. And then instead you're like funny, you know, N- not you or anything. <laughs> you know, I, I, in my head, I saw you say that before you said it. So, you know. <laughs> I know. Cause I realized I was like about to at <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah. You, pa- you paused that. You knew it was coming. So next I was time, like, let me not at you. <laughs> a little less predictable next time, you know. No, but me too. Like I'm, it's me too. Like yeah. I know I'm not like funny, funny, but like I, I told you. I I'm, think you have your moments. I'm goofy. Mm. I, I'm, called, I'm called weird, but interesting weird. I clarified I clear that on another podcast. Literally two last ones. Sorry if I'm repeating this, but I've been told I'm weird, but interesting weird. Like how? I'm not giving any examples. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty open with everything, as I think my listeners have realized, but I'm not, I'm not going, I'm about to transition from what we're talking about to my weirdness. So okay. let's, uh, let's stay on track. Okay. I'll hit, I'll hit interesting weird. I'll take interesting. I would take interesting weird. Over weird. Yeah. Weird, weird. Weird is. I like weird. There's certain levels to that. There's the spectrums to weird. Let's <laughs> not. <laughs> Use your imagination. Weird's better than normal. If someone said, oh, you're so normal, I'd be like, what? Yeah, but I still take the normal guy than the weird guy that's like eating ants on the floor in your living room. I prefer, I prefer to be the weird guy. Okay. The weird well, guy knows something Thanks we for don't tuning know. into this week's episode of Dead Talks. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to stop right there. <laughs> no, I promise you, the weird guy knows something we don't know. Oh, for sure. There's, exactly. There's yeah. <laughs> Did I say ass? I think I said those ants. No, you definitely said ass. There's nutrients in ass too. So, yeah. um, well, you'd know. <sighs> Mom, if you're listening, <laughs> I regret inviting her. No, I'm kidding. You can just, uh, you can literally just chop it. Drop which part? Chop it. Can you? Chop it? Yeah, like chop it, edit. Oh, yeah, of course. But I'm probably oh, not yeah. going to. But I always oh, okay. can. Maybe we will. Okay. So, if this is part of this section is still here, I want to get back to how you're saying your family doesn't, hasn't processed it because your family's crazy. <laughs> to my family if you're listening it's good Um, crazy though good crazy some might say um you know some might just say crazy no (laughs) yeah it's one of those things where it's just like 
I don't know how to explain it. Like you've been living with something something for the past 43 years or whatever. And then the world suddenly discovers it for the first time. And they're like, oh my God, how are you? 43 years later. And you're like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I think that's there. But I mean, right now, everything that's going on, they are definitely very, very triggered. Like they are being re-traumatized and they tell me that a lot. It's very difficult for them. Sometimes they don't even look at it because it's like, it's really hard. And especially the thing is with my family inside of Iran, like, because they shut down the internet. And this is like, this is like PSYOP. You know, during COVID, we all, when we were in lockdown, right? We couldn't go outside, whatever, but we at least had our phones and we would like contact each other and we would just be texting each other in group chats all day, right? To keep us sane. But you have a situation there where they can't go outside and they've shut off the internet which is actually kind of forcing them outside. But the point is that the mental health, like the mental health there right now is like so bad because they can't communicate. So I think this is another, like when I hear from my family inside Iran and they're so traumatized and they're so distressed, it's like, of course you are because everything's going on around you and you can't, you don't even have like a vehicle to communicate what you're going through. Like that's so horrific. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, just uh, just in relation to what we went through, not going through anything like that in in COVID, people had a hard time. A lot of people I know even had a hard time just being isolated alone. Right, and we had our devices still communicate. It was just the physicality of it. So I can't imagine just being completely disconnected. Right, people lost it during yeah. COVID. Like they literally lost it, and yeah. they could still communicate. Yeah, I don't know the numbers, but I mean, um, like overdoses and suicides, I'm pretty sure skyrocketed. And I mean, there's no. It's an immediate correlation, obviously. Right. Because all- humans are social animals. Yeah. It goes, I think, I, I think it also relates to the fact if you keep, if you don't work on certain things, it gets exposed during stillness. And when mm. we have, when we have such stillness and moments being ice, like I, I feel, I don't want to say thrived, but like I was like in my element having a black, granted COVID was COVID. Like outside of that being by myself, I'm good. But to some extent, I have my moments. But at the same time, like I'm comfortable being by myself. Like I've traveled by myself. This isn't tooting my own horn. My my thought is I feel like I've done things, whether it was jobs or I've ex- traveled by myself. I've done things by myself and had those moments already of like contemplation and been in dark places of thought and dark places of realizing what I'm doing wrong and my flaws and all that stuff. So I've have I feel like by being alone, you get to work that out. And if you haven't exploited yourself prior to COVID. I can, it'd probably be very difficult. No, I completely agree. And that's exactly how I felt. Like, especially for people who have a history of trauma, you know, you have, and you're processing that, right? You have periods of times where you process that. Self-isolation is the main tool that you have for processing everything that you're experiencing, right? And I had so many years of self-isolation when I was processing my own thing. So when COVID happened, it was just like, how is this different to any other day of my life? Literally. Yeah. My mom kept calling me. I'm, I'm good. I'm just eating I'm like burritos. literally absolutely fine. Yeah. Like, you haven't seen people for weeks. I'm like literally fine. I know. Um, Sometimes that's nice. Yeah. But yeah, I didn't have any problem with it. But um, I did think that as well, because people, the thing is people who are always so busy, like being busy is a distraction. It's a distraction from processing everything that's unhealed, right? You know, like people who are always like they're working and then when they're not working, they're going out. When they're not going out, they're doing this and they can't just be by themselves. That moment where they were forced to be by themselves is the moment that they started losing it. And it's, and then when you think about that situation in Iran and you think about how much more they have to process in isolation, right? So it's not just like, you know, a dysfunctional childhood that you're processing. You're like 
processing your entire existence under a dictatorship. Yeah, and it's interesting. I just had this thought and I've never related it prior to this was I feel like to the families that have lost people under this regime, it's been like a community type of grief. You know, it's not, mm-hmm. it's, it's everyone has their own grief individually based on who's been unfortunately killed or died in XYZ. But I feel like there's this like cloud of grief amongst the community and the people in that collectively. It's like a collective grief is what I was trying to say. And I, I, it's like unspoken, but I feel like that's, I don't know. It's, it's, I don't know if it's a, that's clearly not a good thing, but it's just something that I feel like all these people are going through in a kind of um, indirect way. I, I don't yeah. know if that makes sense. No, I agree. And I, I think to a degree it can be framed in a positive light because first of all, the reason that the diaspora the Iranian diaspora is so mobilized and so galvanized to go out there and continue activating um, and protesting in the streets and talking about everything that's going on is because of that collective grief, right? That experience of shared grief because we've all been through it. Like every, every Iranian person has either one of their family members or someone they know or a loved one or a neighbor, someone executed, right? And so that experience of grief, that unprocessed grief is like, it's brought to the fore during this time, right? And this is what is pushing us to go out there and, you know, work on this side with the revolution, because there's obviously the revolution in Iran, which is working symbiotically with the diaspora outside of Iran, who is making, being the voice for the revolution, right? And it's weird because I was having a conversation with my friend about this earlier, and it's like, We've been, this has been going on for much longer than 43 years. Like this is just like a long, 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 long history of Iran, which has always been under a chokehold of reactionary governance. And I think this revolution was our never again moment. We never had a never again moment. We were just taking it and taking it and taking it and taking it. And then with the diaspora, with the people that left Iran and, you know, uniting under their common grief, I think we became empowered. We became empowered to an extent that we were just like, we're not doing this anymore. Like we have never, we have never truly been free as far for as far back as we can remember. And our only freedom comes from living outside of our land, speaking in a tongue that doesn't belong to us. It doesn't make any sense. So this is our never again moment where we're just like, this is it now. It's incredible to see. You know, I mean, you're saying it in a different light because you've been way more in tune with it and involved in it than I have. So like I said, this is, I could do better in a lot of different areas of my life, but that's why I was so interested in speaking to you to get your perspective and kind of give another platform, obviously. But I'm curious how it's affected you because I feel like, you know, it's interesting to have your background of what your family's gone through to also be in the States where it's, you know, we have shit going on, but not that. And being so involved in it and constantly wrapping your head through it how has it affected you constantly seeing these deaths, constantly seeing that in relation to what this podcast is? I wanted to kind of roll it back to see how what your effect has been constantly deeping into something so gruesome and all that. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting because even my the work that I do, which is in criminal defense, but it's more the more central focus is just criminal justice, right? On a bigger scale. It's interesting because it took me a while to understand that that in itself was rooted in my family's history and, you know, my family being imprisoned in Iran and all of that stuff. And just, you know, having this concept of injustice kind of being 
epigenetically passed on to me, right? So it just pushes you in a certain direction. And so kind of understanding the American criminal justice system and wanting to be an accessory to, uh, you know, ameliorating that, um, which brought me in this direction. And then obviously everything that happened with the revolution and it was like, okay, this is like this notion of justice has been like in the fibers of my being for my entire existence, right? And now it's happening at such a large scale and connected to my own identity, my own ethnicity. And I know that the first month of the revolution for me was just intolerable. It was, it was bad. I could feel because I've had I've had a history. I've had histories of mental health and everything. I'm sure most people have. But it's that thing where like you can feel you can feel it coming. Like when your mental health is going bad, you can feel it going in that direction, you know? It kind of feels like the dark place. And I remember in the, during the first month or so of the revolution all the way up until I took a break at some point and I went to Me- Mexico at the end of October, but all the way up until that point it was just bad. Like I was like crying all the time. I was just so distressed and I didn't have any way to manage the suffering, right? Because it was like also like, it's a weird thing to explain. And it might be quite unique to some degree to this situation where your people are being killed every day in the streets, but it's not happening to you. And it can't happen to you because you're not there. But you almost feel like it should happen to you because you're only not there because of some stroke of luck, right? So this this bittersweet feeling of like guilt and like relief, and then you feel guilty for even having the relief. So it's like a very complicated emotion to experience, right? And it kind of makes you feel like you have to binge on like violence porn, you know, to make up for the fact that you're not the one that's suffering, because it's like if they're the ones that are suffering if they're the ones that being uh, that are being killed who am i to sit here you know in this life of privilege and just go go about my day and scroll right it feels like in order to compensate for the fact that it's not happening to me i have to force myself to suffer so i went through that experience for you know the first i i guess 2 months or whatever where it was like it felt like it was my responsibility to force suffering onto myself in order to compensate for the fact that I was not subject to it. But that took me down a very, very dark path. Like that was not sustainable. I was almost at the point where I was like, I was just going to throw him in the towel and be like, I'm not going to do this anymore and just forget it. And then I took a break and I went away and I recalibrated and I realized that I had to come back with some degree of detachment. So now... I still, I do what I do, but the detachment is in not indulging in the the violence to the extent that I was before. If something is too graphic, I just don't watch it. If there's videos and there's screaming and there's blood and there's, I just, I don't watch it because that's going to derail me. And if I get derailed, I can't do my job. So I would say that, you know, the way that I move now is with a degree of detachment because, yeah. I, I can't take myself back to that state. Yeah, as you shouldn't. It's not. It's not gonna. It doesn't do any. Any doesn't do any good to you. It doesn't do any good to you, but but you feel bad when you're not suffering. It's weird. Yeah, I mean, it's like a. I guess I wonder if that's some kind of form of. It's a different form of survivor's guilt, kind of. I mean, not, yes. not that, but, it, but it's very. It's very unique, just because it's like a. It's like how you just explained. It was like a big circle, 
like because because I feel guilty, but also relief. But then you feel guilty because of relief. It's like one never ending cycle of just. And the yeah, only way to get out, I mean, I don't know. I don't have the answer to that. I don't, I haven't, once again, haven't experienced what you experienced or anything close. So I, I'm not even going to say anything of what you can do because it's not my place. But it is interesting that you do detach from it while you're attached to it. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And plus, at some point, you see all those videos of all the, the deaths and the killings. I, I think you, we, there's only so much you can see. That's not going to, it might, like you said, derail you. It might go bring you somewhere that's not going to be helpful to your cause. And but at the same time, it's like I don't like the feeling of being desensitized to some something like that. Right. That's a weird thing. Yeah, I agree. I think I think that this is probably kind of similar to how people process death in general, where they have moments where they like have a good day and they feel bad for having a good day, or they're like happy for an extended period of time and they're like, why should I be happy? And it feels like you're doing a disservice to whoever you've lost if you're not mourning them. And then it's like, well, how long do I have to have this experience of wearing myself down with suffering before I feel like I have, you know, given the person the justice of my mourning, you know? Yeah, that's a common thing I've I've recently heard too about that. I never I haven't honestly really I thought of that till recently. Uh, at least deeply about that idea of the grief is kind of like a a nod to the person that died. Like I am hurting, and I'm going to hurt if I. St- there is a guilt to not hurting. There is that. There is exactly what you said. There is that guilt to I'm not feeling this, so it makes me inconsiderate. I, I don't love this person enough, or the situation, or whatever it may be. But at the end of the day, it's like our job is to be happy, and you can still be happy and reflect on shitty things or that are happening or whether it's grief or losing someone like you you still have a right to be happy right. you're not a right i'm a right i don't know if that's the right thing to say but we should you can still be happy there's, there's nothing guilty about being happy it doesn't mean you, you didn't love the person or you don't care about the cause or you don't care about the situation that's happening overseas i think you can execute the mission while you know kind of surfing the wave around all those moving parts that can cause the depression or cause the sadness yeah. but it's like a fine line of figuring that out I feel like I just talked in circles. Did I even, did I even make sense? Like, no, it didn't make sense. And I think I think another uh, another added layer of complication to it is that sometimes when you have moments where you're happy or numb or whatever, you're just not feeling that experience of intense suffering, it's because you're actually just repressing it. It's not necessarily because you're okay, right? And I, I've had this experience recently as well because I, I lost a friend last year and I kind of had this experience of this complicated emotion where you have this experience of repression and then you feel bad for repressing it because you're you know you feel like you're okay during that state of repression right so you're trying to kind of unpack it and go be beneath it into the suffering but then you you have to understand that the repression is your body's survival mechanism like repression to me is your body saying right now you can't handle this because if you could handle it your body would offer it to you right but then I think the repression can become um, autopilot, which is why people never process stuff because they stay in the repression and just they never want to handle it. So it's weird because you're fighting, you're fighting your body's mechanism for survival, which is repression, to try and get to the suffering. But your body's literally telling you you cannot do the suffering right now. Yeah. It's contradicting because your body's protecting you. But I've I've mentioned this, I did an episode that I did on 
it took me a while to do it, but I did an episode about my story and I kind of mentioned that. I was like, okay, so my, my, when I was 12 years old, this happened to me. My body's just going to say, Hey, forget that for now. We're going to literally make you forget about the trauma and the stuff you went through. So you're going to figure this out later when you're a man and fuck you up then. So it's like, it's like, <laughs> it's like, it's just like a weird situation. Your body's protecting you, but also messing you up later. You know what I mean? So, but I, th- I think the ultimate premise of it is that we do have to massage these things out. And I feel like for 40, 40 plus years of generations of doing, going through that. And then there's this awakening now that is, seems like the last time, you know, how do you, how did you word it? This would be the last time or what? Um, never again. Never again. There it is. Yeah. But I have to think of an, a new one because that's, um, the Jewish one. Oh, they, yeah. they, they claimed it? I think so. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, they can have that one. You're going to have, <laughs> yeah, to, figure, we, have to figure out another one. Well, we have another, maybe we'll say it in Farsi or something. I don't know. Okay. Um, not no more. <laughs> not, no. <laughs> and the Italians say never. Yeah. Never, never again. Never. <laughs> yeah. I like East that. Coast I'll take that one. Yeah. Um, guess. That's how you say it in Farsi. How do you say it? Hadges. Hadges? Hadges. Sounds like a meal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sounds like something that you have with, with hummus. Yeah. yeah. There you go. I'll get the ha- the guess with a side of hummus. <laughs> there yeah. we go. That's our yeah, yeah. Restaurant ideas. Okay. <laughs> uh, no, it's interesting. But what I was trying to say was that this this whole... If there, if I don't know the culture, culture of this is something that's discussed internally throughout all these years. It's like everyone just continues on. Like you said, they get desensitized, mm. and then something like this happens, and I feel like, and there's an explosion amongst the people, and I feel like that's a relationship of how y- humans can be. Sometimes, sometimes you hold you. If if I'm not saying that's what's happening, but my relation to that is there can be an explosion as a human if you hold things in. You know what I mean? Like whether it's good, good or bad. Like sometimes you have that explosion could be terrible, or you have an explosion, aka of like I'm going to be free of this. And I think right. it comes with massaging the shit that we go through, whether it's grief or anything else. You know? Yeah, I I think that the thing about that, though, is that that can only happen when there's a safe space to do it, right? So, like, if you're in survival, you're going to be in survival until you're in a place where there's... I mean, survival continues anyway, unless you force yourself out of it, right? But realistically, you can't actually come out of survival until you're no longer in survival. So this whole, these past 43 years, it's not like anyone could have began processing the trauma of that experience because they were still living under that experience. So it's like that outlet hasn't even manifested for the people of Iran yet. Do you know what I'm saying? So it's only kind of in hindsight where, you know, the the regime is over and, you know, they have some semblance of democracy or freedom or whatever, that in hindsight, they can begin to process the trauma of all of the... Because, I mean, it's just crazy to even see that much death and violence every single day, to just be exposed to, like, just children, like children being shot in the streets. Like, how do you process that, right? They don't even have a forum to process that right now because they're still living under it. So it's something that's going to be a generational trauma that's going to continue for generations even after this yeah i mean you're kind of you're ex- you're down the line too and you're in your own what happened with your family even though you didn't experience it there is I and mean, then you mentioned epigenetics that's i mean mm. the, that book right there right in front of you is a, a pretty common discussion that guy bruce lipton talks about his whole idea is based on epigenetics but there is i mean scientifically so joe Dispenza talks about epigenetics a lot yeah they're well. very they're very very close bruce, oh, really? is a, bruce is a biologist they've i mean they've I think they've done things together, like kind of in this, a similar realm, different teachings, but great book. Did you it, steal this from the library? It does say great, but just say library on there, doesn't it? Yeah. Looks like I did, but no, I bought it on Amazon. So if someone else okay. stole it. I think I'm, I think you're, you're, oh, you tell me. Well, <laughs> am I safe? Yeah, it, no, in being in possession of um, stolen property is a crime. So long as it's 
knowing. Well, if you, I'm going to contact you knew Jeff was, Bezos. He, he sold it to me. If you knew it was stolen. Oh, okay. Only if you knew it was stolen. If you didn't know it was stolen, then it's not a crime. I plead the fifth. And um, <laughs> so what were we saying? What were we doing? Epigenetics. Yeah, I, I just wonder how much of a correlation that has to you, obviously, besides anecdotally of hearing stories from your, your, anyone before you that has spoke to you. Like, I just always wonder how those traumas that happened to our families do relate to us. And epigenetics kind of, I think, I want to say relates to that. If anyone that's smarter than me listening and I'm butchering that, I apologize. But I think it does have an effect on our bodies and the way we live. There, Like you said, generational trauma there, mm. there is a real thing. So, Yeah, you know, I, I feel like it literally seeps into your consciousness. Like so many things that I've spoken about during the period of this revolution that I've conferred with family members who lived the experience and are kind of living it now and everything, they always say to me like, yeah, everything that you're saying is correct. And I always think to myself, how do I even know? How do I even know any of this? I don't have an answer for it, except that something is in my consciousness that I didn't place there, you know? So it's just, it's weird. It's weird to think like at the epigenetic level, at the soul level, at the con- at the level of consciousness, how these things manifest into becoming part of your body, part of your identity, part of your consciousness, part of your even just like cerebral knowledge, you know? And I've I've had these questions. I've asked myself these questions so many times. Why is all of this so intuitive to me that I don't have to ask and I just know it. And, you know, when I confer with people who know, they say it's correct. But I think that I don't have an answer. <laughs> I don't have an answer. I have a belief though, yeah. I have a belief. Mm. I have a belief. And run with that. Run with that. Yeah, why well, I just eat that up. And sometimes we ask questions and it's like, you said when you came in, you don't ask questions. Sometimes I feel like, this is my personal opinion, I, t- I got to tell myself to stop it. Like, it's good to be inquisitive and it's good to learn. Oh, I ask a lot of questions. Same. Me, so I, yeah. ask, I ask a lot of questions myself. But sometimes what I'm saying, there's certain times where I think you just, we, I just got to be like, all right, I don't know. I've said this before too. I don't know. And maybe that's what my belief is enough. Maybe I don't need yes. a concrete answer. You know what I mean? Yes. Just leave it to the, throw it up in the clouds and see yeah. what happens. You were going to say leave it to the gods, but you were like, that's too controversial. No, I'd never say that. Oh. <laughs> we act like you know what I'm going to say now. It's been forty. It's been uh, forty-seven minutes. You don't know yeah. me. No, okay. I'm just kidding. Forty-seven minutes. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. Oh, yeah. What time is it? How are you? Like, she's got to get out of here. Oh, yeah, I've got to go. All right. Well, any before we get out of here, any last-minute plugs or anything you want to mention about what you're doing? Because uh, besides people finding, I'm going to put everything in the description. Mm-hmm. My outro was like, "What's next?" I don't know if you have like a sentence about what we can say about what's going. Oh my god! Like a preview. What's today? What's the date? Because like I don't have a set date when I'm releasing this. Just December fourth. Be... So this is recorded on December fourth, just for everyone to be clear. Because I don't. Obviously, this is a fast moving thing, so I just mm-hmm. want to be clarified when we spoke. Um, other than that, I want to thank you for being here. If there's any thank kind you of for having me, of course, it's a pleasure. If there's any mic drops you want to make before we get out of here, mic drops. Um, stay tuned. Mm. Mm. Stay tuned. Dead talks. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>